3: is somebody who thinks of all these characters from the cathedrals past as his personal friends he said he was come to meet my friend Alan I thought he was going to be a living person he took me to the centre of the nave and, and stooped down to a big um, stone slab and said, morning Alan, how are you? And this was Alan of Walsingham who died in, I don't 13 something
2: That was Christopher Somerville talking to us about Britain's historic cathedrals.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, where the UK's best-selling history magazine available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
2: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interviewee is Christopher Somerville, an acclaimed travel writer who is also the walking correspondent for the Times newspaper. He's the author of a new book entitled Ships of Heaven, which describes his experiences of visiting some of Britain's most historic cathedrals. Christopher popped into our studio a few days ago to tell me about the history of these fascinating buildings and to share some stories from his travels through Britain's religious past. Can I begin with what sounds like a very basic question, Mm. but how exactly do we define a cathedral as opposed to just a church?
3: It's it's where the cathedral sits, which is the seat of a bishop. So it's specifically about the bishop? Basically, it's where the bishop is is based. That's it.
2: So there's actually nothing inherent about a cathedral building that makes it a cathedral. It's purely that bishop aspect. I, I think that's right. So the focus of your book is is on British cathedrals, mm-hmm. and I realise that these all exhibit great variety. But is there are there any things that are common to British cathedrals that would set them apart from those on the continent?
3: Um, I don't. I can't think of any. Uh, I think. I think that you know, the, it depends if you're talking about modern or ancient cathedrals and all those different architectural styles. We borrowed the we borrowed the Gothic from France, and uh, in fact, pretty much borrowed the... one. Well, obviously more of the Norman style from France so th- these were sort of these were French ideas that came in and there's a lot of wild carving and stuff that I would recognize instantly and most people would as being British about about the style of the cathedral but i I couldn't put my finger on anything which would say these are inherently British buildings now
2: and as as anyone reading your book will realize Britain has just a tremendous wealth of cathedrals mm. is it unusual in that regard or would we find a similar number of, of such impressive cathedrals in say France or Italy
3: yes you would and that poss- some people might say more impressive cathedrals you'd have a, a lot more Baroque cathedrals in uh, Italy for example um, no I think it's I think that what's what's fascinating about these cathedrals what, among the many fascinating things is the history of the Church of England and how that affected them when the Reformation came along. That's that's something which obviously occurred in other countries, but it seemed to have occurred with a particular violence and and um, drama here. So I think that's a, that's an important um, anchoring point in the whole story.
2: So just going back a little, a little bit before then, when when does cathedral building actually begin in Britain? Well,
3: um, St Augustine was given an old Roman building to start, his His ministry, you could say that was the first cathedral there was uh, by the time of the Norman conquest, there were ten cathedrals or regional seats of bishops, fairly humble most of the buildings, but powerful but it wasn't it was when the, it was when the Normans came really that the big mighty massive cathedrals as we think of them monolithic blocks were really started, and that was a political thing as much as a religious one it was it was power and presence it was saying we're here. We've got the power. We and God together are your masters now. And uh, and this is our statement of bang. We're here. And we're here to stay.
2: And so if we're looking at the great cathedrals around Britain today. Do they still have quite a, a strong Norman air to them?
3: Some do. Some don't. Um, I mean, the older ones are mostly, well, they were, they were some were Norman foundations, such as Durham. Durham is a Norman foundation. When you go into that building, it's quite plain on the outside. When you go into it. And it dominates, by the way, because it's on this peninsula over the River Ware. So there's a castle and the cathedral like man and God together. When you go into it, you have these massive tub-shaped pillars with huge, deeply indented um, patterning on them, chevrons and dog tooth and so on. And almost no, there's no ceiling bosses. There's very little internal decoration. It's more a statement in stone, in massive, powerful stone saying, we're here, we're here to stay come in but be overawed
2: on a broader point how far do you think actually cathedrals have been more about i guess the the ideas and the motivations of men as opposed to the kind of more religious side of things have they always been statements of kind of temporal power
3: yes they have they're often about uh, pride and consequence it, it's, a, it's the decoration of a cathedral for example you have these wonderful chantry travels which were which were done in the 14th 15th 16th centuries where the souls of rich men could be, they paid monks to pray for them night and day. And these wonderful elaborate um, structures which say, I, Lord, so-and-so, am important, have been a good person. God, please notice me. Other men, please notice me. Once you'd established a a cathedral, usually a Market Town followed and charters and fairs and prosperity all the way around. For example, Salisbury. Salisbury was Salisbury was founded at Old Serum, a, an Iron Age ring fort uh, above the town. And it didn't, it didn't work. They built a massive cathedral up there and there was a castle too. But cathedral and castle were too close together. There wasn't enough water on the hilltop. There was squabbling between, between the, the clerics, the people and the soldiers. Once they once had permission from the Pope to build down by the river in 1220, immediately they, they planned it so that there would be a town, a proper planned town and a cathedral side by side so the prosperity would sort of be a, a virtuous circle. So um, I think they were they were an expression of man's relationship with God, but they were also an expression of how the bishop or the local powerful family was feeling about himself.
2: I wonder if you'd give us an, an idea of what it took to build one of these great cathedrals. Because um, in the book, you talk about of the length of time and the cost, and it's just staggering to contemplate nowadays.
3: Mm, incredible. I mean, um, Jeremy Dixon, who showed me around Westminster Cathedral, which was built towards the end of the 19th century, by the way, said that it's a dream commission, but you'd never be able to do it nowadays because the cost would just be too enormous. The last, well, the last sort of wonderful, significant cathedral I think to be built was Coventry Cathedral, and that is a, a collection of wonderful works of modern art, and it's also an expression of this pain and and suffering, reconciliation, abasement, atonement. It's it's a very strange um, atmosphere in Coventry Cathedral. There is a, a an atmosphere of hope, but also of underlying pain and suffering too. Um, that cathedral was built in was it ten years perhaps ten years time, um, but something like York Minster took four hundred years to build and started as a, as a pre-Norman foundation. Then the Normans built their cathedral. Then that burned down and was shaken down by earthquakes. Then somebody else came and built another one, and it was embellished with Gothic. And it wasn't I think it was fourteen seventy two by the time the built that York Minster was finally declared a, a finished, you know, and consecrated. Sometimes it took a saint, for example. Cuthbert at Durham if you had a saint the saint could perform miracles and healing work so if you had a saint already then you built a cathedral to contain him and the people who work for him if you like or it took it took a military sit, uh, situation like when the Normans came and they said a place at like Lincoln which was up on a rock they realized that they had a fantastic fortified position there and here was the place to plonk something down so everybody could see it for miles and miles around. You needed stone for the quarries. You needed thousands of workmen and you needed a, a mason. If you were lucky, you got a good mason because they weren't the architects. So the masons sort of were the architects, the chief masons. And you needed an absolute army of people, men and women, to keep to keep things going. And you needed luck about your foundations, because most of these cathedrals look as if they're great they are, the great stone boxes, hundred thousand tons of stone, bang, that's gonna be there forever. But in fact they're all on wobbly foundations. Bits fall off, bits fall down, there are cracks, you put up a spire and it topples over. The story of these cathedrals is one of is one of rack and ruin as well as as well as glory.
2: You alluded to the fact that it could take hundreds of years, decades, mm. hundreds of years to complete one of these cathedrals. Mm. So, what was it motivating the initial cathedral builders to spend all this money, and all this time, on building something that they may never see completed?
3: Well, it's 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 partly the same thing that motivated the English aristocracy to commission somebody like Capability Brown to landscape their parks. It was keep laying down, laying down store for the for future generations. It was to save their souls. Very important. I mean, it's hard to imagine a medieval mindset now, but that was very important um, facet of everybody's life. How do you escape hell and get to heaven by doing something good like building a cathedral? And the idea of the church as a permanent structure, something that the church was the NHS and it was the job centre and it was the the social security of the Middle Ages. Churches and and monasteries administered all that. So people were very willing to see a cathedral built. They wanted it to happen. They wanted the, the town that grew up around it to happen as well so the, the, the motivations were pretty strong quite varied
2: and you alluded to the huge cost of building one of these cathedrals mm-hmm. and, and said that you couldn't even do it nowadays mm. where did the money come from in those days for for the church to build so many of these amazing buildings
3: well the church was the church was rich people donated ground and in the case of Salisbury um that Henry, the the very young Henry the Third, who was only twelve at the time, I think, uh, donated wood from his estates to to for the, the timbering. A lady from um, the Isle of Purbeck um, donated twelve years' worth of of whatever stone they could get out. In twelve years. Pe- people were r- really rushed to be generous, to be part of the, the the giving mentality, because they wanted to save their souls. They wanted to be associated with it, and um the, the bishop obviously had. And monasteries had tremendous income from their wifelong estates and so on. so the money was there. I don't know of any cathedrals which were halted because of lack of money. they were halted often often the building was halted for many reasons, one of which by the way, was the Black Death. there was a very notable um sort of hangback in cathedral development and also in optimism, I think you'd say about the decoration. so after thirteen fifty you'd tend to get not much and then decades later often it the building is resumed, but in a much more restrained style. Um, obviously, a lot of people were dead by that time.
2: So then is it fair to say that cathedrals often did reflect what was going on in wider society yes, at the time?
3: very much so. I think so, yes. People felt good and positive that cathedrals went ahead. Um, I think that um, also this is why the Reformation was so interesting because there was not no cathedral building after the Reformation for a long time, but you'd have thought as those Tudors got more and more power and and privilege and the golden age of, of Britain was taking off. If it hadn't been for the Reformation, I wonder I wonder what wonderful buildings would have been built in the latter half of the 16th century. It's it's something we won't know.
2: And so nowadays when we look at these cathedrals, they're, they're, many of them are still awe-inspiring. But do we have any sense of what kind of reaction they'd have provoked among someone in the medieval time where they would have never seen these kind of size of buildings?
3: I think they'd have been completely awestruck. For a start, the building would have been painted inside and out. It wouldn't have just been, let's say, Wells Cathedral West Front. It wouldn't have just been a golden stone glory that we see now. It would have been a riot of colour all over and tremendous bustling to and fro because a lot of the um, medieval market towns were built up close to the walls of the cathedral. So there would have been, you know, the smells and, and sights. The five senses would have been working over time. And then, say you're a Lincolnshire peasant and you're you're working your fields, and for some reason you come to Lincoln for the first time, and you look up, and there's this massive, great building, something enormously large, dominating your view, and saying, "What's up there?" You know, there's fun, there's the bright lights, there's the, there's there's uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll, maybe not in medieval times, but plenty of drink plenty of women lots of laughter all the fun you know is up there and also there's god looking down at you and say come up and worship me when you get up there you go through the exchequer gate you look to the you look at the front of the building and there's a writhing mass of carving telling you what's going to happen to you if you're not good so there's this admonishment and power and this magnetic attraction at the same time i think people would have been completely overwhelmed by it myself
2: the buildings are, as we were saying, they're really impressive. Mm. How much of an engineering and architectural challenge was it to create one of these gigantic cathedrals without a lot of the technology we have nowadays?
3: It was an extraordinary challenge and it's amazing. It's so many so many um, masons made it such a great job of it. In Salisbury Cathedral, there's a model of the cathedral being built and that's very instructive in showing you how it was done. Of course, people, had, people in France have been building large cathedrals before the English ones, so some of the technology and, in fact, some of the uh, experts were imported. But you can imagine that the challenge of building something which reaches two hundred and fifty feet above the ground, and weighs a hundred thousand tons, and is made of these massive blocks of stone on very wobbly foundations—it's it, it's astonishing, and you can only you can only marvel that masons who went from from a cathedral to cathedral weren't sort of cast down by it i think i think it was just it was just this feeling you were all working together on this massive project which is going to bring prosperity but also was going to do you personally a bit of good with god that's why you get let's say in in minster in the chapter house if you get a wonderfully carved oak leaf let's say round the back it's just as wonderfully carved although nobody's ever going to see it because that's that's your little bit you do for God, because he, his eye will see it. So I think it's it's always important to remember the catalyst for doing good work was, was this idea also that God was watching you and was going to judge you from, by what you did.
2: And you just mentioned an example of actually something I was going to ask about, which is mm-hmm. uh, we've talked a bit about these kind of huge, impressive edifices. But in the book, it also comes across how these fascinating little details that many of these cathedrals have. And I wonder if there was a couple you could highlight for us that you thought were particularly interesting.
3: Yes, I mean, um, when I went to Lincoln Cathedral, I stumbled across the um, masons' yard, and in there I met a man, Paul Ellis, who is a stone carver, an expert, and he was—he just dropped his tools and basically gave me the rest of his day, which I was wonderfully grateful for. And he, whenever he has to replace a, a piece of stonework, he—he he tries to do it with something expressing his own art. So, for example, there's a wonderful uh, skull he's done with pound signs for eyes and a gold coin between its teeth, which he calls greed. And he did that in 2008 at the height of the banking crisis, as an example. Another one, if I can if I can use this word, at the time of the fox hunting debate, he carved a fox hunt around the um, pillars of a, of a particular door. And he said, I call this the dog's bollocks, because round the back, I've done this dog. And he said, I've carved his two little nuts, but only the pigeons and what the person he calls the big fella upstairs are ever going to see them. So he still wants to put that tiny, tiny detail in. A good example also is stained glass restoration Um, at uh, Canterbury, Leonie Seliger um, runs the stained glass department. The the care and detail they put into restoring 900 year old, 800 year old uh, stained glass is is quite extraordinary. If you look very very closely you'll see holes have been bored into it almost like like woodworms by acid rain and uh, pigeon dung and air pollution generally speaking and these people take these out and they photograph them. They very meticulously and carefully restore them so they're exactly like they were and then they put them back with a with a gap between them and a plain glass layer with, with the same lead patterning but of plain glass outside so that the light can shine through but also so they're protected. This attention to detail is is, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, another example is the broderers at Durham Cathedral. These are the embroiderers. We spent some time with um, Cheryl Penner who's one of the broderers and she showed us a thing of St Aidan she was doing uh, a embroidery. His halo... Just to go round his halo once with gold wire I think took her 40 minutes to go round and then 40 minutes to come back again and there was something like 100 or 120 there and back curves she had to do it with this gold wire so she was investing weeks of her time just in this one detail of this one embroidery cloth which would be hung over an altar and which perhaps one in a hundred people would actually look closely enough to study but people do it. They, they give their time, they give their energy, their expertise, and their detailed work. Um, I suppose it's roughly the same spirit that the, their medieval forebears did.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging
2: So the, the stories of cathedrals are often the stories of the people who live within them or serve within them, such as bishops and, and the like. From your book, are there any characters you came across from the past that particularly inspired you or interested
3: you? A couple of people who would spring to mind would be Alan of Walsingham, who was the sacrist at Ely Cathedral. The, the guy who showed me around, who actually came out of retirement to do this, mm-hmm. is Michael White. And he is somebody who thinks of all these characters from from the from the cathedrals past as his personal friends. Um, he said he was, come meet my friend Alan. I thought he was going to be a living person. He took me to the centre of the nave and um, stooped down to a big um, stone slab and said, morning Alan, how are you? And this was Alan of Walsingham who died in, I don't know, 13 something. This man was a, a bit of a genius. Um, he was of, of Jewish extraction, but he was, he was Christian. And he was responsible for digging the foundations of the Lady Chapel in a place he shouldn't really have been. So uh, one night, the tower, which was next to the Lady Chapel, fell down in the middle of the night with a fantastic noise. Luckily, no one was hurt, but it was a huge cataclysmic disaster. And Alan, I think, probably felt responsible for it. So he designed an octagonal tower. He knew that this roof couldn't be heavy. So he and another person designed a wooden roof which could be lowered into the hollow stone tower and suspended there on wooden blocks. The lantern, the famous lantern, Elia's lantern, which is is all made of wood and showers light into the building. Wonderful legacy to have left. Another interesting person was Bishop George Bell of Chichester and his dean, Walter Hussey, who were fanatics for modern art. And they filled just a cathedral with fabulous um, examples of 20th century modern art um, so that, uh, yes they let their personal um, enthusiasms run the way they did but it's meant that this sort of ancient Norman building is full of unexpected shapes lights colors and uh, I'm sure lots of people find it a shock to the system but it means that 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 old building retains new life and energy which is wonderful
2: And one of the characters whose story is most obviously associated with cathedral is Thomas Beckett, who who you talk about in the book. How important is he still to Canterbury Cathedral nowadays?
3: He's absolutely vital. He's the the main focus still. Pilgrimage is still continued to to cathedrals, although not really – well, some people still do go for medieval reasons, for actual healing, whether bodily or spiritual – as many people through, through the course of writing this book said to me, people like to go on pilgrimages. They like to have a journey with an ending. They, need, well, they want to bring a journey to, to a conclusion. And in fact, Canterbury is a start of a great um, pilgrimage to Rome, still nowadays a foot pilgrimage or somebody who did it on a bike. But Beckett's the central figure. It's this wonderful, dramatic story of the poor boy made good and the... The king versus the the layman or the cleric anyway and layman who became a cleric power versus virtue um, and corruption and then there's murder at the end which was which was as dramatic an end as you can possibly get and then the penance of the king and the the feeling that that um, Thomas he was the most important saint in Britain that's for certain and Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, of course, it was, they were going on a, on a pilgrimage to, to Canterbury. I had a nice um, episode in Canterbury. I was just leaving the cathedral, and on the wall, we were looking at graffiti because they are uh, quite a trendy thing in cathedrals now. It, all those people who scratched, you know, Jim loves Frida, in the cathedral walls. There's many, many graffiti on cathedral walls, and they've been dismissed as being something a little bit naughty or just not really very interesting. But people are interested in these little personal accounts, you know, on the walls. I was just looking at this wall, and I saw a long face, about um, two foot long, more than that, with a long nose, little downturn mouth and sad eyes, like this, and a crown, an elaborate crown on his head. And the person I was with said that we think that could be Henry the Second. And then I just put my phone flashlight up, and behind it there was another figure, much, much less clearly scratched, uh, an enormous face with those Byzantine sad eyes, and again a sort of little downturned mouth, and an enormous halo round his head. So this could have either been Henry the reposing in the bosom of Christ, or it could have been Henry the reposing on the bosom of his sainted friend and enemy Thomas Becket, and in, in, in penance and, and, and sadness. It was it was extraordinary to see how somebody who wasn't making an artwork but was driven to represent those things had put them on the wall there, no words, no explanation, and maybe it looked as if it had been done almost contemporary with Beckett, so say 800 years ago. And that message had come straight through to me. It was it was a very moving moment.
2: So another low point for the cathedrals is something we alluded to earlier with the Reformation. yeah. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about what that meant for cathedrals in England.
3: Well, cathedrals which were associated with monasteries often got it worse because the monasteries were, were as you know, unroofed and plundered. Generally speaking, cathedrals jogged on. The, the the prior of the monastery become the dean and the senior monks would become the chapter and they just continue as they were, except of course with a switch from the Catholic right to the new Protestant right. The shrines were broken up. This was almost the most important thing. You, you had the shrine moved in a moment, a flash of a flash of a moment, from being a centre of healing and awe and worship and pilgrimage to being just a stone box with some old bones in it. And the box was opened and the bones were thrown into the river. Oh, nothing happened. There were, no, no, no hand came down from heaven and crushed the people who did that. The jewels and the gold were taken away. And it was like austerity. Striking, but of course, when the Civil War came around and Puritanism got a, a stronger hold, you got a much more dramatic breaking up of of uh, symbols and wonderful artworks in the cathedral, like um, the famous uh, Blue Dick, who was Richard Culmer from again Canterbury, and he wrote an account of what he did: this vicious, frothy little account of f- smashing windows and breaking down statues and bursting out part the evil um, representations of saints and so on so much vandalism so much hatred and so much bitter bigotry was was unleashed in those days and uh, you can only regret it when you see a place like the like the chapter house at um, at york you know with the faces and hands knocked off all these wonderful um, carvings which had been done in medieval times
2: and so i suppose the cathedrals went through a fairly low point sort of around did. the civil war and from mm-hmm. then onwards and mm. When did they begin to recover and when did they start building new cathedrals? Well,
3: all through the 18th century, I think the cathedrals were at a pretty low ebb. And then the Oxford movement started and there was a great revival of Anglicanism, which coincided with the, or they probably fed each other, the Industrial Revolution, greater power for Britain, more money swilling around, and also much bigger um cities in the north of course little places like you know birmingham which were which were sort of scattered uh, industrial villages came together and swelled manchester which was hardly existed was it was uh, you know, swelled enormously so you had this large number of people who were who needed somewhere to go and there was the power and the and the, the power and the money to mostly to embellish old churches as new cathedrals also you had the um, repealing of the anti-Catholic laws so that Catholic cathedrals began to be built for the first time. A great scandal when it first started, but then again, nothing happened, no no, no explosions from heaven. So cathedrals like Westminster Cathedral, for example, and that's not Westminster Abbey, Westminster Cathedral, which looks like a, a sort of giant um, warehouse, is an absolute treasury of bling. It's most wonderful marble gold silver gilt fabulous lights and all the rest of it a a really spectacularly beautiful building but the wonderful thing about that is when you raise your eyes up the walls it all stops about 20 feet above the above the church floor and then the rest of it is this dark sooty black vault which was never filled in with mosaics because the money ran out and you know the 20th century intervened so you've got almost like sort of heaven and earth. You've got mammon down below in in tremendous style and then just this mysterious space-like vault above. It's a happy accident, but a, a very, very beautiful one.
2: Coming on to the present day, what mm. do you see as the importance of cathedrals in 21st century Britain?
3: They're more popular than ever, which is really a remarkable thing. Um, parish, church, church, um, um attendance is going down all the time. I think it, it was, was it 2017 or 16 it was under a million for the for the first time that's really quite a shocking thing and as it goes down the attendance at cathedrals goes up and there's all sorts of reasons for that partly because they put on a good show they are centers of excellence uh, still are in art in music in carving in stained glass in in performance. And, of course, the service is much more dramatic. There's better singing. There's not always better preaching, but there tends to be better preaching. And people like a spectacle, as they always have done. They get used to a spectacle too, you know, with television and and all, all the modern media blasting spectacle at you all the time. It's not... I think a lot of people finding it's not really any, it's not good enough, especially young people, to go to a church in, you know, Little Snoring where you're, excuse me, Little Snoring, where you're um, six people and six old grey heads are nodding in the pew and there's no drama. There's no, it's all very sort of internal and a bit repressed, it's, it seems. Whereas cathedrals often are, are they're quite um, flamboyant in their presentation quite a lot of the time. Financially, they're on very dodgy ground. Um, the National Lottery Fund has cut its funding to cathedrals by a large extent. And uh, that's something that they relied on. costs, it depends which cathedral, but it costs about five, six, seven million pounds a year just to keep the cathedral going. That's a hell of a lot of money to find. Um, and people's donations are not all that generous, really. They hardly cover it. So cathedrals are branching out. When I went to Durham, they were. Filming some Avengers film there, for example, It was restrictive. There were places you couldn't go, and uh, Harry Potter, of course, was was filmed at Gloucester Cathedral and the, the cloisters. There are people who object to that, but the fact is, if you if they don't do it, if the cathedrals don't monetize themselves to a large extent, they're going to go on falling down, and they can't they won't be able to keep up this wonderful standard of presentation that they have. The other thing is that if you talk to ordinary people, they are almost always proud of the cathedral in their midst, that our cathedral, we love it, even if they're not prepared to give money towards maintaining it. There's this very strong sense that the cathedral is, is a, a focus in their community. And so I think that they do have a future, a very strong future. It's just whether they're gonna be able to get the money together to ma- maintain themselves.
2: So what kind of health are the actual buildings themselves in at the moment?
3: Not good. They're falling to pieces. Um, wind and weather are bad decisions by, you know, George Gilbert Scott, who did who did so much to to restore cathedrals in the Victorian era. But, you know, they used metal clamps which rotted and opened up gaps, which wind and rain could exploit. I, I talked to many, many stonemasons, and, and, and the general impression was of cathedrals which are falling, stuff's falling off them all the time. It's crisis management or its long-term investment in keeping them upright. In the 1970s, they found that York Minster's um, central tower was falling down, for example, as a huge crack It was going to widen, and the man in charge said if one stone falls out of the top, the whole thing could just come crashing down. So they had to invest millions and millions of pounds in shoring it up. As they shored it up, they opened up a completely new undercroft to, to, to do the work. They found there are some Roman remains down there, the remains of the... The garrison commander from Aberarcom two thousand years ago, the remains of his house. So now they've cut a trench, and you can see the Roman remains. And you know it's a way of making the best of a bad business. But uh, they were, ma- you know, they were mostly built um, at a time when foundations weren't th- weren't thought through carefully enough, or somebody decided the cathedral has to be there for strategic reasons, even if it's not very good foundations. Salisbury Cathedral has is founded on twenty seven feet of gravel with rivers running through it. But those rivers have to be kept, actually kept flowing. You'd think, heaven's sake, stop the water going through. But in fact, an ingenious system of sluices and sluice gates and so on keeps the water flowing, because if it didn't, the gravel would dry out, it would turn into sand, and we all know what happens to buildings founded on sand. Ely is founded on green sand, a, a little tiny lens of green sand. And once you get through that, you're into clay. So they are wobbly old things. And when you go to Durham... You walk around the outside of the cathedrals and you'll see the, the northern winters have just burrowed away at, those, at that north wall, particularly making the most fabulous colours and shapes out of the sandstone, but they're eating it away. And if you look at the trench, which goes all around the building, it's full of a sort of a scurf. Like, it's like, like dandruff, constantly falling off the top of the building of little bits of stone. There's no, there's no um, let up in this attritional war between basically the weather and the, and the building.
2: And of all the cathedrals that you've described in your book, do you have a favourite one to visit?
3: Well, of course, I should say no, but uh, I'm very fond of Ely. That's partly because it's uh, it's the cover star of this book, um, which the cover was painted by a very, very talented artist called Carrie Aykroyd. Um, and, she, and she's done a fabulous job of showing Ely Cathedral. With a, with a strong evening light on it and a stormy sky behind and then some swans in the foreground. So Ely is a particular favorite, partly because it's called the Ship of the Fens. Very first time I saw it, it was on a windy day with the corn um, in front. The corn was sort of moving sheen and dull, sheen and dull like, like waves. And it did appear to be a ship moving and then the next time I saw it was in what they call a fen blow which is when the wind gets up and blows all the peat soil away and there's of dark swirling fog and again it was it looked like a ship sort of like a tanker sort of breasting its way through a fog so I think I think Eel is a particular favourite but of course I'm in love with all of them now.
2: And just finally what would you say is the most unusual thing that you saw or found out while researching this? book?
3: I think talking about little stuff Perhaps the most, um, the most weird thing that I saw was in the upper quarters of St Magnus's Cathedral in Kirkwall in the Orkney Islands. Wonderful cathedral. And there was a ladder there, a huge ladder, which was unusually wide and had a central vertical divider between, so it was basically two ladders together. And the guide said, what, what do you make of that? Nobody could think what it was. It was the Kirkwall Hangman's Ladder. And basically, two two people went up: the hangman on one side, the condemned person on the other side. And only one person came down again. They stored that in the cathedral. And I think that I think that in you know, the wider sense, the Coventry Cathedral experience was extraordinary. Where you have this these bombed out ruins from the Blitz raid in nineteen forty, which destroyed the old cathedral, and next door to it you have this new cathedral, which is a mass of wonderful artworks. But it's not a triumphalist thing. It's a monument to pain and suffering and to reconciliation and the efforts for old enemies to try and understand each other. It, you'd have to go there to really sort of see it in action, but it's quite extraordinary how, what a message of hope, hope in spite of everything uh, that cathedral gives.
2: That was Christopher Somerville. Ships of heaven, the private life of Britain's cathedrals, is published today, the 11th of April, by Doubleday. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back on Monday when Melvin Bragg will be exploring a tragic love affair from the medieval period.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library.